0: on trips uh, to visit family, perhaps in other cities, or go on vacations to go sightseeing, depending upon where you go, you can come across architectural marvels that are awe-inspiring. In the United States, some of these marvels that come to mind uh, immediately are places like the, actually the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, the Arch in St. Louis, the the Empire State Building in New York, uh, perhaps even the Hoover Dam. These really are marvelous architectural uh, constructions that can take your breath away. Uh, in antiquity, there were the well-known seven wonders of the ancient world that included things like the pyramids or the, uh, the great lighthouse in Alexandria. We've, I think we've all had those moments, haven't we? Uh, I remember as a young man, being awe inspired when I visited St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It really was breathtaking. Or when I saw the Empire State Building for the first time uh, when I moved to New York. Herod's Temple in Jerusalem didn't quite make the seven wonders list. However, if you saw it as it has been described by historians, it should have gotten at least an honorable mention. From the way they describe it, it was similarly awe-inspiring. As the Lord and his disciples are heading out of the temple, the disciples in our passage today look at the complex of buildings that make up the temple in Jerusalem and have a similar experience. Having said that, let's turn our passage to our passage this morning. And it is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and we will try to cover verses 1 through 4 today. That's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the reading of God's Word. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. This is the Word of God. Let us now pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, be with us now as we study the teaching of our Lord. Even in the chapter that we are studying, His Majesty, the Lord Jesus, teaches us and teaches His disciples that you, Holy One, would guide them, inspire them to teach and to proclaim, to find comfort that you, very God, would be with your people. Help us now, we pray, as we study to understand well what the Lord taught, and help us to apply it fruitfully in our own lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We sure have come a long way, haven't we, in the Gospel of Mark? And now we're about to embark on chapter 13. We're in the last section of this gospel, and specifically, we are in a section that has great complexity, of which has been debated by the church, especially more so in modern times. At initial reading, it appears to be a chapter devoted to end times. We call that eschatology, the study of last things. And it certainly does have things to say about the end. But as we go forward into this chapter, we will see it has more to say then the return of Christ, also known as the Second Advent. It has things to say about what would happen in the disciples' generation, as well as the period of time the, after the apostles had passed on. With all the hoopla—I that's the best word I can come up with— with all the hoopla about end times, we can lose sight of something very important here, the pastoral concern— Of his majesty, as well as his preparing and teaching ministry for the disciples, and through them, ultimately, us. Now, some preparatory remarks are needed before I go headlong into this chapter. A couple of summers ago, both Pastor John and myself taught a um, several-month study on eschatology. That study was called a systematic study. That's where we looked at the Scripture in its entirety and came up with an explanation of what the Bible teaches about end times. For those of you who had attended, you may recall we discussed various threads of biblical themes that fed into biblical conclusions, especially a covenantal perspective. We also gave overviews of different models that our church accepts, our denomination accepts, as being viable, like amillennialism, postmillennialism, and historic premillennialism. And at that time, we also taught that we respectfully reject dispensational premillennialism. You know, I'm not certain if we still have those lessons up on our website, However, if you are interested, I think class notes might be available if you would like them to go back and reread them. So what we will be doing here is what is called biblical theology as opposed to systematic theology. Biblical theology is more concerned with the text under study. That is to say that we won't be looking at all the other texts uh, in the Bible, but we will, to be sure, we will be aided um, in our understanding by looking at some texts um, within the within the Bible. But we won't be doing a systematic theology. So that is to say, if you are thinking that over the balance of chapter thirteen, we will have a full blown teaching on eschatology, I think you may be a little bit disappointed, and I want to make sure that we manage expectations. Now, within the Gospel of Mark, as we've noted in the past, Mark describes Jesus as teaching, but it's very rare when Mark relates the actual lessons that he's teaching. We have read the responses of people have been amazed at Jesus' teaching and at times have led to skepticism by folks like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth. We have also noted that Jesus taught in parables— but the explanation to his teaching was done privately. The notion of insiders and outsiders has also been covered. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we have such an example of that here in our text today. Now, for, as they say, full disclosure purposes, you need to know that I hold an amillennialist perspective. I think that you should know that, if you don't already know that, because if you are knowledgeable about such things, it will inform you as to how and why I have come to such conclusions. Now, one last note about the topic of eschatology. Over my lifetime, perhaps yours as well, I have heard it said that there is so much division within Christendom, and the reason is that it is about the way we interpret Scripture. As a consequence, it has been reported that the depth of teaching in some churches is lacking. If that is the case, this is said. I, for one, do not believe that the church must suffer such a fate, for it is wrong for God's people to starve when we have such a feast to feed upon in the scriptures. Instead, I think eschatology can become a wonderful example, whether you hold any of the three views I just mentioned, pre premill, historic premill, or postmill For the church, you and I, within this local church even, to demonstrate that we can disagree on non-essential doctrines and continue to have communion with one another. By doing so, we can be an example of Christian love, maturity, and charity. I pray that over the next several weeks as we go through this, to keep in mind that, in fact, it is indeed possible and desirable to exercise these wonderful fruits that comes out from our great God's salvation. To that end, let's dive into the deep, wonderful waters of God's word. So, the disciples were walking out of the temple, and they must have been marveling at the temple as perhaps they were looking around and walking and looking backwards. They were simply awed. I kind of see the disciples' comments as taking in the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness of the buildings, and the construction of it, much like we would when we see today in architectural marvels. "'Teacher, behold! What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings! This is breathtaking!' Perhaps they were asking him, "'Don't you think it's amazing, Lord?' It's like something we might say when we're awed by something that we see, right?' And we might feel the the same way the second time, or the third time, or the fourth time that we we see it, as as assuredly was the case with the disciples. Another way of saying what I'm saying is, it never gets old. You're still awed. Now, before I move to the Lord's response to this, it's important that we understand the role of the temple in Jerusalem in the life of a Jew in the first century. So we'll talk about the role of the temple in Judaism in the first century, what it meant to them. So let's start with the history first. The temple in the first century that we're reading about is not the original temple. The first temple was built by King David's son, King Solomon. That was an ornate and glorious uh, temple where God had an earthly if you will, residents. It is where the God of creation met with his people, received their sacrifices, forgave them their sins, and as long as his glory was there, protected his covenant people. As long as they were not covenant breakers, he would continue to give them the blessings of the covenant. However, if they were in violation, they would receive the covenant curses. Well, we all know what happened if you've read through the Bible. After centuries of idolatrous sin, God, sending prophets to call his people to repent, in 587 B.C., the glory of the Lord left the temple, and the temple was destroyed along with the city. In that instance, God used Nebuchadnezzar to sack the city and destroy Solomon's temple. Later on, under Cyrus... His rule, the faithful remnant that was preserved by God, returned to Jerusalem to rebuild what was really, I guess you can call it, a poor man's temple, in comparison to Solomon's temple. It was not until Herod the Great, a complex man for sure, which we don't have the time to get into right now, that decided to rebuild the temple on Mount Moriah. Herod was well known for being a builder. He was also known as being the one that ordered infants to be executed, as found in Scripture. After, of course, the wise men visited with him. You see, he was keen on eliminating any rivals for his crown. Now, according to Josephus, the well-known and well-respected Jewish historian, the temple itself was constructed out of large white stones get this, approximately 40 feet long by 15 feet high and 20 feet wide. Now, just to give you an idea, you couldn't fit more than three stones in this entire sanctuary. That's how big the stones were. And when you consider... That they didn't have construction equipment that we have today, you have to understand that it really was a marvelous feat of construction, and as you could well imagine, requiring an incredible amount of labor that lasted for many years, actually several decades. In fact, the building of the temple was an economic boom for Jerusalem, as the unemployment rate was so low for such a long time and consequently, the unemployment rate skyrocketed at its completion. It was very ornate, as we are told that they used marbleized granite. The entire temple area took up one-sixth of the acreage of the old city of Jerusalem. So you can well imagine that not only did the temple loom large in the city physically, It was also visible from just about everywhere, and so the temple was always on your mind. Some ancient writers noted that it was a mountain of white marble with gold. The dome of the temple was especially covered with gold, and the white stones were washed annually by the priests, the Levites, to keep it clean from um, bird droppings. So if you were making a trip or needed to pass through Jerusalem, the thing that you would see from a distance would have been, especially on a bright, sunny day, awe-inspiring brilliance that would reflect it off the golden brightness of the whitewashed stones, it would have been nothing less than breathtaking. Now, let's focus upon the profound. Meaning of the temple that had taken on in the life of a Jew. Let me just say that there is no way of overestimating its importance in the life of Judaism. The building was no less than the centerpiece, it was no less than the lifeblood of Judaic culture, its entire religion, its politics, and its history. It was the place where God was to meet with his people. And it was the most tangible and obvious sign, it's important, of the covenant between Yahweh and his people. You see, for a Jew, to hear that the temple would be demolished or destroyed in any fashion, for him, it would have meant simply It was the end of the age. It was time for the great judgment. It was the end of the world. Now, you have to understand this. It was unimaginable. And if it happened, it meant it was all over. Now, we have to take a step back and remember that the disciples were, let's say, having trouble Understanding Jesus' predictions that he would have to die and be resurrected again. Was, he did that three times in chapter 8, 9, and 10. He prepared them for what was to happen. He did so because they had a different perspective, a different paradigm as to when and how the Messiah was to bring about salvation for God's people. Now, if you recall... Jesus expressed frustration to the disciples when they they, they simply weren't getting it. On one occasion, they were in a boat. Jesus warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples were concerned about not having enough bread. And Jesus, in what must have been a frustrated response after explaining to them, said, Do you not understand yet? Part of the reason that they could not understand was that the Holy Spirit had not been sent, and part of it was that they were under an Old Testament hermeneutic that saw the Messiah, the Anointed One, doing all of His, all of his work of salvation in one advent, in one coming. So, this is critical for us to understand. I must underscore that notion. It's crucial for us to understand that the disciples' response, the disciples' response, as well as to help us understand the questions that subsequently arise and consequently Jesus' teaching. Now, having understood this, and view of a Second Temple. Jew, how he would see the temple, Jesus responds in what must have been to some of them as a shocking response. Jesus says as they're walking out of the temple area, you see these great buildings, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be torn down. It seems almost as if uh, Mark has Jesus dropping the mic because the narrative doesn't continue until they are now at the Mount of Olives. And now, looking out from the Mount of Olives, you can see the buildings of the temple in full splendor. I can't help thinking that not only shock but also confusion just like when Jesus told him that he must go to Jerusalem and and be killed and be resurrected. Now remember, when a Jew heard of such a thing about the temple's destruction, it was the end of the world kind of stuff. Allah Judgment Day, right? So as we get to the Mount of Olives and the disciples, we're told in verse 4 that he has a private conversation. They've had some time to think about this. And what do they come up with? Well, they come up with two questions, right? When will this happen? And the second one is, and what's the sign? What should we be looking for regarding this destruction? Well, the Lord begins to answer their question starting from verse 5 and on. And so we shall begin to look at how the Lord answered each question, in turn, beginning next week. How's that for a cliffhanger? But I would like to ask you, if you were one of the disciples, having heard what Jesus said about the temple, what would go through your mind? what questions would you ask of Jesus? I think the question that we can ask that would be instructive to us simply is, why? Why, Lord, must the temple be destroyed? It's so important for us to understand this question because it will and does give insight into understanding God's glorious plan for his people and what his people should anticipate going forward. I mean having eschatological implications. The question is, why? Why must this happen? As we begin to answer this question, we must remember that the temple had become a stumbling block for Jews. As we've already discovered in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has said that this must be a house of prayer for the Gentiles. It simply was not producing the fruit that it was called to do. Dr. Cranfield, in his writings on the Gospel of Mark, sums it up well when he writes, they had security in their sin." Jesus had already cursed the fig tree, had he not, if you recall, an enacted parable. The fig tree represented the temple and its leaders, because on the outside, it looked like it was giving fruit, but in reality, it was not. So also, the temple from the outside looked acceptable, glorious, awesome, but to God, it did not produce the fruit that he required. But also, we have to remember that the temple, its sacrifices, and it being a meeting place of God and his people, was a foreshadow. A type of something better that was to come in some future date. What is called the antitype. The temple was nothing but a shadow of the greater temple, who is Jesus. What was going on here had a more glorious purpose. The final temple had come. The place where the people of God would tabernacle was not to be built by human hands, It was God himself. If you recall, in the Gospel of John, we are informed that, speaking of the word, Jesus, he came to tabernacle with us, to be with us. When the substance arrives, the shadow is not needed anymore. It is obsolete. But the physical tabernacle and the temple were destroyed as we look backwards. They were shadows. The old becomes obsolete. You see, the new wine can't fit into the old wineskins. The hope of forgiveness is no longer in the offering of the blood of bulls and goats and even doves. It was now in the blood of the Son of God. The destruction of the temple was, if you will, the exclamation point that the old order was now over. Biblical Judaism was now over. Now, we have to make a distinction between Biblical Judaism and Rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism was based upon the Mishnah and the Midrash. They were basically commentaries on the Torah, the law of God, that had led, well, had led to things that were being taught, that as we have discussed over the last 12 chapters, to Jesus recoiling against their teachings. And this ushers us into the new covenant for which the Scriptures... Proclaimed would come. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6 But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus did not say another temple is here. He said that something greater than the temple, referencing the temple in Jerusalem is here referring to himself. In John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21, which I'll read for us, Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and by the way, it was not done yet. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Note that in verse 21, this is John's editorial note, writing after the the sending and him personally receiving the Holy Spirit, stating he was speaking of himself as the fullness of the temple, not built by hands, but by God. Come down to tabernacle with his people, who themselves, you and I, would become what? As Peter states, living stones as part of that very same temple that is being built up. Now, I know we don't have the same dimensions of those stones, but Christ sees us as even bigger for the building up of the temple of God. The shadows and the types were preparatory, Perhaps if they, the disciples, asked instead why, they would have seen this. So now let me end with a question for you. If the shadows of the tabernacle and the temple are preparatory, why would we ever want to go back to the shadows that are clearly inferior Why would we ever want to go back to a handmade tabernacle? Why would we ever want to go back to a physical building when we have Jesus, who is the fullness of God's glorious plan? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have revealed to us and you continue to reveal to us through the work of the Holy Spirit your covenantal plans to redeem a people who are not worthy of redemption through the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that you have a plan to save us, and that one day... Your son will come back and that you will usher in and he will usher in the redemption of all things. We thank you that you have chosen us to be living stones in the temple, the victory temple of what your son has accomplished for us. And so we pray that you would help us as we continue to study your word, to see the outworking of your plans in the covenant of grace in our lives and help us to to learn and to grow and to reflect our great King and Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we ask all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.